1: Joining us now, one of our favorites, he covers the Colts for Colts.com, part of the Colts Audio Network, and you hear him over the PA at Lucas Oil Stadium. It is one JJ Stankovitz of Colts.com. Follow him on Twitter at JJ Stankovitz. How are we doing on a Wednesday, JJ?
0: Doing great. Uh, getting ready to go. Co-workers to the Philadelphia Phillies game today, because this is a kind of a, a odd trip, right, where we're you know, we're here for the joint practice yesterday, but then there's really not much to do today. So uh, you know, here we go.
1: <laughs> uh is this a park that you had to check off in terms of baseball wise? Are you are you one of those people that likes to travel to different parks or have you been there I am, before?
0: I, I've been there um this was oh man, I mean it was probably sixteen, seventeen years ago. Um I went with my dad uh, during high school and saw Uh, Let's see Sergio Mitre started for the Cubs You want to remember a guy there Good immaculate grid play
2: (laughs) I haven't
1: played today So I'll pocket that just in case yeah there you go well hey i mean anytime you're able to to check off the list i know some people are big enthusiasts in that uh i won't i won't ramble off mine but i'm not dedicated to the craft but if i have an opportunity to yeah you go check out an mlb park while you're waiting at it so enjoy citizens bank and of course enjoy your time as well for the precinct finale tomorrow night i'd like to start there first from the release as you guys do weekly of the unofficial depth chart for where things could potentially play out tomorrow night it seems like from Shane Steichen's availability the last couple of days that while there were no starters that played of meaning from an offensive standpoint in the matchup against the Bears that could very well change we already know Richardson is starting tomorrow night but that could very well change with the makeup of things for what we'll see tomorrow night correct
0: yeah, that's correct. Anthony Richardson is going to start. Shane Steichen said it would be on kind of a case by case basis of who else plays. Um, so, you know, maybe you don't see them, but um, we'll kind of figure that out once we get to tomorrow night. But yeah, one last chance for Anthony Richardson and the first team offense to go out there okay. and, uh, you know, continue to build their chemistry in games. Anthony Richardson continued to call the plays, um, you know, spit out the play calls, just getting the, you know, little timing things down. Um, We'll see if the Eagles play anyone. They haven't played any of their starters during the preseason so far. Nick Sirianni has seemed to shy away from that. Um, so maybe not, you know, the Eagles, the, the folks that you remember from the Super Bowl will be out there. But, um, you know, should be a, a good opportunity for the Colts' first-team offense.
3: So all I heard was that the Eagles are scared <laughs> to play the Colts again after they yeah, played them go, so James, close exactly. last year. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. <laughs> but, but no, J.J., in all seriousness, I do know that Anthony Richardson probably faced one of the best defenses in the NFL yesterday. So how do you think he fared with you know, a great defensive line that led league with sacks last year with 70, I believe, added Jalen Carter, and then obviously they have some help there on the back end with Darius Slay leading the way?
0: Yeah, I thought, I thought it was a pretty good day, James. And this is something I noticed Anthony do on the second day of joint practices against the Bears, is he took a lot of check downs. Mm-hmm. He took a lot of, you know, easy completions. And that's something that I go back to a conversation I had with Shane Steichen all the way back in February, where he talked how important those plays are going to be. Just get a completion, stay ahead of the chains, don't make it an incompletion, a negative play, something worse. Um, and, you know, as Anthony Richardson learned – How to identify different kinds of defenses, different kinds of coverages. That's an important skill for him to have to be able to say, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to force it because I don't maybe trust what I see or they disguise something that I've literally never gone against before in my career. So, all right, I'll just check it down. Take the easy, you know, an easy outlet pass to a tight end, you know, check it down to a running back, whatever it may be. Um, That's an important skill for him to have as he. Then now gets experience facing these different kinds of defenses because the way Sean Desai plays defense is different than the way Matt Abrams plays defense, which is different than the way Gus Bradley plays defense. So I think those those three things, those joint practices, and now you know these games, I think are really important for Anthony's development, just in learning what he's seeing and knowing where the the answers are with it.
1: JJ, is there still a feel from your observations around the league that either game two or game three of the preseason, in a perfect world where injuries aren't at play, you should still treat it like a dress rehearsal game? I feel like so often when there were four preseason games, usually it was game three that was evaluated that way. Is that still present in today's NFL? Um,
0: It's kind of here and there. Uh, It really depends coach to coach. I mean, you know, Shane Steichen worked under Nick Sirianni and you know like I said Sirianni hasn't really played as starters but Shane has so I think it depends on the coach I think it's more than anything Jimmy I think it depends on the team I think it depends what the team needs like do the do the Philadelphia Eagles really need to play in the preseason after coming off making the Super Bowl probably not you can probably make that case but the Colts have a young team with a a quarterback in his first year uh in the NFL do the starters need to play yep probably they do so I think it's kind of a, a more of a case by case thing, but by no means is it like it was, you know, maybe 20 years ago, where every team played their starters into the, you know, sometimes even after halftime of that third preseason game.
3: JJ, how much of a boost was it to get DeForest Backner, not, not, sorry, Buckner back in the lineup? Wow, that was rough. <laughs> back in the lineup, I know obviously he's a huge factor in what the Colts want to do, and I don't know if I expected him to come back just because he seems to play through everything, but again, to see him healthy out there, how much do you think that helps this team?
0: It's huge. I mean, like, Zaire was talking after practice yesterday about having Buck out there. It's just like, he'll just go blow up every third play of practice, (laughs) and like, I mean, you've seen it. Like, just that that Mm -hmm. swim move that he can do, um, and then all of a sudden he's in the backfield, and it's a sack for, you know, Jalen Hurts, or it's a running play, and all of a sudden Kenny Gainball's getting hit, you know, two yards behind the line of scrimmage. Like, His presence back there is so important. But, James, I think you brought up a really good point about Buckner, just the toughness that he has. Like, you remember last year, he played with a brace on his elbow the whole season Mm -hmm. and didn't let it affect his play at all. Like, this dude is a – like, he he is one of the toughest players I've ever covered, and he takes such good care of his body. He knows exactly what he needs to do to get through a 17-game season. And, yeah, they're going to be – you know, you can't prevent freak injuries. Um, The injury rate in the NFL is 100%. We know that. But uh, for, like, soft tissue stuff, he's so good at preventing those, Um, you know, just with the work that he does and just the wear and tear of the season. He doesn't let that affect his play. Even if it's it's definitely affecting him, you can't tell when he gets out there on the field.
3: So a little bit off-the-wall question, but we had this debate in the media room during camp. If there is one player on the Colts you do not want to get caught – in a dark alley against, or you have to get away from, is it Buck? Because I'm like, this guy is huge, but he's also not big in the sense of like a Grover Stewart. Like he
0: looks like Iron Man, but he's also like 6'5 and 300 pounds. Okay, but see, here's here's the thing, James. It's tough for me to answer that because I did this whole podcast with DeForest Buckner uh in the off season, where I just asked him about being a dad. Yeah, I
3: heard I'm that. Like, I listened to it.
0: I mean, oh, you know, okay, if dark alley and bucks walking down. I'd be elated to see him. Like, you know <laughs> Hey, how you doing? Like, it would be. Like, it would be totally different. I mean, like, you know, um, I, I think one guy who just like from his play on the field, I'm going to throw someone out of left field for you here. But like, Grant Stewart. That dude, yeah, that dude yeah. flies around the field. Yeah. <laughs> he's number forty. He's number forty-one for those listening at home who haven't, you know, have a keen, uh, dialed, aren't keenly dialed into Colts special teams. But this dude flies around, uh, and it like every time he makes a tackle, like it looks cool because his hair goes flying everywhere yeah. too. Um, but like he plays, he plays like exactly how you want a special teams got to play, and that's just with like reckless abandon. <laughs> yeah. That is um, true you know and and he'll he'll kind of scrap it up i saw him scrap it up a little bit in some of these joint practices um you know maybe a guy who I, you know, i saw him coming down an alley and I I knew a fight was going to happen. I'd be like, ah, I probably don't want to face that guy.
1: (laughs) J.J. Stank was of Colts.com. You also know him, a part of the Colts Audio Network, and of course, Colts PA announcer at Lucas Oil Stadium. J.J., we know that the JT situation is what it is, but the rest of the depth chart with this running back room is going to be relied upon at some point in time this year. Whether things play out, regardless of which way they play out, the running back room is going to be relied upon with guys like Deion Jackson, like Evan Full, like Kenyon Drake, depending on where the depth chart settles out. Going into this final preseason game, I know you don't know who is going to start from that running back room, but the room as a whole, how valuable is this opportunity to continue to get familiarized with Anthony Richardson in the the last real opportunity before week one?
0: Yeah, I think it's big. You know, Deion Jackson obviously has some experience running behind this line, um, you know, just in terms of like how they operate. But, Really, I mean, the whole run game has been so revamped just with the the scheme uh, that, you know, Shane Steichen has brought in, um, the way, you know, the offensive line getting, you know, improving. I think the offensive line to me has been one of the the more impressive units of training camp. Um, so, just getting out there and, you know, getting a feel for the physicality of it. Um, you know, we've seen Deion Jackson be physical. Evan Hall, we've seen his tape in college. Good pass catcher. Um you know, Kenyon Drake obviously has been in the league for a while. The, the other guy here, too, is Zach Moss, who he's not going to play tomorrow. But, um, you know, when he sustained that arm injury a couple weeks ago, the 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 timeline Shane Steichen and Gabe was kind of right up to the regular season. He might be available. So something to keep an eye on there as well.
3: JJ, one player I know who has been showing up throughout training camp had, you know, a, a go yesterday, I believe, with – the Eagles' wide receiver is DJ Baker. So how do you think, not even just him specifically, but just that entire secondary may have had a, you know, sort of welcome-to-the-NFL moment with such a talented offensive group on the other side?
0: So that's that's good, James, because I was talking about that with uh, our guy Rick Venturi. And, yeah, I mean, Devonta Smith got him a couple times. He got, he got Baker a couple times in practice. But what Rick said to me is he's like, think about it this way. Daryl Baker Jr. has never played a single snap of defense in the NFL. Now he's, he's seen one of the best receivers in the league, what what it looks like. What, how do you learn from it now? How do you grow from it? So when you face a top receiver, you know, Calvin Ridley in week one, um, you know, for example, there, Cooper Cup going into week, uh, you know, whatever it is, week four, just kind of a couple guys off the top of my head. Like, okay, now you've seen it. How do you, how do you defend it? What's your counter to it? Because um, now you've seen it in practice. So I think those reps, even if he didn't maybe win them, I think those are super valuable for Daryl Baker and the other cornerbacks just because, look, the standard the standard in the league, you know, A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith are right there. That is one of the best duos of wide receivers in the NFL. So, okay, you've seen it in practice. It didn't count. But now what? how do you respond to it in games? I think those, those reps are really valuable for those young corners.
1: J.J., I know that – it was a depth offensive line look in the second preseason game against the Bears. And, and I'm not asking you about whether or not Anthony richin should have started or why he didn't start. But looking at the tape from that game, there were many times where it looked like situationally, particularly with Sam Ellinger when he was out there, that the type of play calls that were designed would have looked from the line's perspective competent and successful enough for him to have been out there. So the larger question I'm asking is... Overall, from the offensive line, particularly the depth pieces that might be there, what were your takeaways from their performance from the second game, and then what's your outlook for the starters tomorrow?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, from from that second game, um, you know, Arlington Hambright, I thought, you know, still kind of, he got in there at uh, right guard. He played left tackle in that preseason one. Um, you know, some other guys in there, Danny Pinter, I think, you know, him being at center, we've seen what he can do at that spot, um, you know. Pretty good backup at that in in that role. Blake Freeland's a guy who's got a lot of talent. Uh, you know, still have some ways to go, some things to work on, certainly. But you can see on some of the reps, uh, you know, if you turn on the tape, you can just see the natural talent and athleticism that, that Freeland has. Um, you know, uh, the, the, as for the starters, though, I think like the one guy who I just keep going back to is Bernard Ryman. Um, You know, when 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 he said in the spring that he put on like 15 pounds. You know, sometimes you hear players say that, and you're like, all right, whatever, what does it really mean? But then you see him out there in practice. You see him in in these games, uh, you know, against Buffalo, the one that he played, and it's like, yeah, his play strength looks like it's a lot better. Um, And I think that, you know, his natural progression of, you know, he hasn't played a lot of football Yeah, He's an older prospect, you know, for a guy who's in year two, but he hasn't played a ton of football. And I think the Colts always knew with him coming in last year, like, He could be a functional tackle, but it was always going to be that year two, year three jump for him as he gained some strength and some more experience playing left tackle. So I think that, you know, his his ascendance, from what I've seen in training camp, I am really excited to see where it goes, uh, you know, tomorrow night, depending on who the Eagles play, certainly, but then into the
1: regular season. Big fan of his across the board, by the way. We had him on a couple weeks ago, and it's more off the field than anything. Found out that his his guilty pleasure fast food is Chick Fil A. That special place in my heart, and he's a Chick Fil A sauce guy. So I mean, it doesn't take much to to oh, to, my to, to buy me, James. I, I was I was all on board, ready to roll. Eleven dollars in <laughs> Jimmy
3: Taffy. So J.J., hopefully you know you have a, a higher standards for yourself than Jimmy here, but no, I'm joking. Uh, I do want to touch on how do you think? And I know it got a little spicy yesterday with the joint practice. It's like they always do. But one of the quotes that stood out to me from Anthony Richardson was him saying it didn't really bother him too much. Mm-hmm. And from a maturity standpoint, how impressive do you think that is for him to, you know, maybe he was, there was a play where I wasn't there, obviously, but I read about it. And, you know, uh, Eagles defensive lineman to strip the ball out of his hand late or something but he didn't take it personal so what do you think that does for a team when you have a guy who keeps a level head no matter what
0: I mean look James as Anthony Richardson kind of grows into the the leadership role that comes with being QB one like nothing phases this kid I mean like at all yeah okay you got the ball swatted out of your hand maybe a little bit late all right you know we're just we're, we're out here practicing we're working the pads are on let's do it um that that just kind of even keel, never too high, never too low uh, mentality that he has. I think that's really important to have for as a starting quarterback. Where you know, in times of stress, where or you know, it's a big play in the game, um, you know, or maybe he makes a mistake on second down and all of a sudden it's a big third down. Like to not have him be rattled at all. Um, that that helps guys. That calms guys down. That that helps him. Okay, you know, hey, if Anthony's got it, like I can too. Uh, that stuff really does matter when you get into the you know the actual game situation that the Colts are going to face with Richardson starting uh, September 10th.
1: J.J. Stankovitz, the Colts.com, with us here on Query and Company. J.J., w- with your observations yesterday, how was the secondary tested during the joint practice yesterday, and how will they be tested regardless of who's on the other side of the ball tomorrow?
0: I You know, the but kind of like we were talking about with Devonta Smith where he had some pretty good reps against Daryl Baker, but that's going to happen. Devonta Smith is a very good wide receiver and Daryl Baker is a young cornerback. Um, I think the learning opportunity for those guys is really good. Um, you know, when you do get these challenges, I thought Juju Brent had a pretty good day yesterday. Jalen Jones continues to stand out, um, you know, and make plays here and there. He's, he's just like, he's a tough competitive kid. Um, so, you know, it, the, I think the joint practice is a great opportunity for those guys, but, you know as for the game you, you really want to assess kind of like competitiveness sometimes um you know where the, these Eagles receivers probably aren't going to be running at, you know crazy route combinations you're you're not going to have uh you know exotic coverages that Gus Bradley's going to play he Gus Bradley even said this after you know, for the Bills game we they played a lot of man coverage just to kind of test guys hey see how you hold up in man coverage against whoever is across from you whether it's you know, it's you know not going to be Stephon Diggs or AJ Brown potentially, but whoever it is, just hey, let's go see how you how you do on it. Uh, I really like that mentality. Just all right, let's let's figure out the competitiveness level of these guys, and then kind of start figuring out where they fit into the defense from there.
3: JJ, how crucial do you think this final preseason game is for those bubble guys? Those guys who are trying to prove themselves talked to Jawan Winfrey actually last week after he caught the touchdown pass because I was just curious to know, what is it like when you're living life on the edge? You know, this is a guy who was a six-round pick. I believe in 2019 has never really made it to the NFL. He's appeared in a few games but never really had his moment in the NFL. And he was just telling me, yeah, that preseason touchdown last week was the first one he had since his rookie year in 2019. He's like, this year is do or die. And so I find it fascinating huh. when you yeah. find those guys who are – you know, borderline guys, because we know the NFL isn't just made up of superstars, right? You got to have some guys on the margins who help you win. So are there any, you know, bubble guys that kind of stick out to you or you're trying to latch on to or just keep your eyes focused on Thursday night?
0: I think you're always looking at the defensive line uh, for Absolutely. me. Like, you know, the guys the guys kind of going down there uh, like a Titus Leo who's had, you know, some pretty good days during training camp. <clears throat> but, He's a six-round pick, a guy who's got a lot of athletic upside, but hasn't played a lot of D end. I mean, this dude was recruited to play—I want to say—safety at mm-hmm. Wagner, uh, <laughs> and he played like wide receiver in high school. Like, he—he he, he does not have a typical journey to play in a defensive end in the NFL. But you want to see, you know, stuff out of him, and and you know, guys like Alkadi Muhammad who was brought in during training camp, a veteran there, um, you know. And then on the other side of the ball, I, I think you're absolutely right about the wide receivers because. That right now with Ashton Doolin out, there is a wide open spot on this roster. Uh, you know, at least one, maybe two, for a wide receiver to come in and, and earn that. And Juwan Win- Winfrey's a guy who has had a pretty impressive camp. Uh, you know, he had a really nice catch during eleven and eleven yesterday down the sideline, and then he caught a touchdown of a couple plays after it. Uh, you know, a guy who had does have some special teams experience. So, yeah, you're, you're looking at that, and I think, James, the point that Juwan made to you, like, this is do or die. Like, I think I think some guys who are maybe younger don't always kind of comprehend that. Like, yeah, I'll probably get another chance, and they probably will. But for a guy like him who's, you know, entering, what, his fifth year in the NFL, yeah. like, it really is do or die for these guys. So, like, are, am I going to make it in the NFL? Uh, am I going to put enough good things on tape in the next couple of days, or, you know, I guess for them tomorrow, to say, yeah, I've earned a shot, you know, on this roster in the NFL. Otherwise, am I going to have to go play in, you know, maybe I'm going to have to go play in the CFL. I might have to go play in a different league, uh, you know, the USFL or the XFL or whatever. Like the opportunities are limited and games are where every team in the league gets to see how you're really doing. So for those guys, these games are so important because, you know, it's the old cliche, you know, your resume is your tape, and you're not trying out for just the Colts. You're trying out for the other 31 teams in the league.
3: Yeah, Winfrey is 26, turns 27, I believe, September 4th. So, you know, you're getting up there in age, and and it is kind of that rubber meets the road, like how much can I continue to sort of survive at this level? And you made a good point about him making that touchdown catch in the end zone where, you know, it wasn't the greatest throw by Gardner Minshew. It could have been an interception, but for a guy, Tariq Stevenson, on the Bears, who's a second-round pick that traded up for him, he drops a pick in a preseason game, it's not going to affect his immediate future. Whereas a guy like Juwan Winfrey, just having a touchdown on your resume can only help you when you're trying to survive out here. So I'm glad to get your thoughts on that because it is very interesting, but I'll uh, let Jimmy take it away, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, the, the last thing on my end, JJ, I know that Shane Steichen hasn't officially commented on, the, the at least I believe he hasn't, if he hasn't, either of you correct me, on how much we're going to see the Colts starters tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. But in your mind... How much of that will be dictated by what's present on the Philadelphia side of things? And how much will that be dictated just by this is our set time frame and this is what we're going to commit to?
0: Yeah, I think it's probably more the set time frame. It's probably not dictated by what Nick Sirianni is doing. It's probably and, you know, it it, if it's a quarter, but it goes a little bit longer because you do you feel like you need the work, then you go do it. Um, You know, I think this is probably going to be one of those where you have a set time frame, but it's a little more flexible. Just of saying hey okay do we need to go out there with another series like did we get the work and we needed um, you know do we need to cut it shorter because we got the work and we needed you know I think we even saw that with like Gardner Minshew uh, in that second preseason game where he led that touchdown drive and then changed seconds out alright second team's good like Gardner you got your work in. let's get you out of there let's get Sam in there um, so it, it can always kind of be flexible and probably isn't dependent on what the Eagles wind up doing.
3: JJ how unique was it to see this last one for me you know, Nick Sirianni, former Colts offensive coordinator, Eagles head coach. You know, go against the former Eagles offensive coordinator, current Colts head coach, Shane Steichen.
0: It's, it's funny that, uh, you know, the, the pipeline between the Colts and the Eagles, because there are so many guys on the Eagles staff who are here in Indianapolis. You know, Marcus Brady's over there, the former offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jason Patu- or Kevin Patulo, excuse me, uh, he's over there. Um, you know, the, the crossover is pretty strong between these two organizations and obviously shame being uh, in Indianapolis. But, um, you know, the Eagles are a, a very good franchise. And, you know, I think people around the NFL view the Colts the same. So you always like to kind of see those crossovers happen.
3: That's awesome. Well, J.J., enjoy the game today. I'm very jealous, by the way, because there is not an MLB game I'll be going to, <laughs> you know, today. But enjoy the game. Thanks for coming on, man. I'll see you soon.
0: All right, appreciate you guys. James, see you back at the facility.
3: And now we're going to segue into college football, which is, I mean, the baby to a lot of people. It's the start of football season for pretty much everyone. If you're not a big high school person, it's obviously started here in Indiana. We have David Ubbin on the line, covers college football nationally for The Athletic. David, how you doing?
4: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks for having me. I reached out to David. He responded in like two seconds yesterday. And I was like, this is my type of guy. <laughs> you take great pride in that. <laughs> I do. I do. Cause it's like, I, I, I promise I, I, I want to be more proactive and I will be, but sometimes I'm like, wait a second, I'm going to the radio tomorrow. So I appreciate it, David. And I'll start with week zero football is here. I'm excited about it. You've been traveling. I feel like all around the country kind of prepping for what should be a very exciting season here in Indiana. The, most prominent team in action will be notre dame what are some reasonable expectations for marcus freeman in year two after sort of a rocky start to year one and kind of getting back on track there you know later in the year
4: well i mean i think you got to improve you know I mean, the, the trajectory always means um you know so much um and then that's a big part of how coaches are, are sort of viewed, yeah. Uh, for better or worse. Um, so, you know, you've got to have the arrow pointing in the right direction. So, you know, when you, you're you succeeding a guy like Brian Kelly, who had, what, you know, five, ten win seasons in a row, mm-hmm. and then he goes on and wins the SEC West in year one while you're kind of struggling, that's, that's tough. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, double-digit wins seems like something that if you don't get there – there's gonna be a lot of grumbling and, and you gotta put on the line in year three.
3: And just to piggyback off that really quick, how much do you think they are affected or not affected? Notre Dame, that is, with all this conference realignment and them being, you know, sort of that independent school. Now I get it, they, you know, I believe they joined the ACC for a little bit during like COVID or something like that. But, you mm-hmm. know, how have they sort of managed or been okay with all these changes?
4: I think they're sort of unaffected because ultimately if they're still cashing checks. They're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, they still have access to the playoff, which is the most important thing. And, yeah. um, you know, unless those things change, there's no reason for them to even think about moving. You know, they like their deal uh, with NBC, obviously, and they have great access to the playoff. So, you know, unless there's a situation where they start lagging behind in money and want to get that big 10 cash, or um, becomes a situation where getting in the playoffs is going to be difficult for them. Uh, they're not going to move, and there's no reason for them to. Um, you know, the, the the one school that seems to have made independence work for for, for long for uh, you know long term period.
1: David, last thing on Notre Dame before we look big picture and look at other matchups for Week Zero. Let, let's entertain the idea they do achieve double digit wins, but not only that, they're in the college football playoff conversation. When you look at their big big games on the schedule Clemson USC Ohio State in reverse order there two of those at home do you envision this Notre Dame team being capable of walking out of that stretch with just one loss to their resume
4: uh actually probably not <laughs> I don't know that I see it this year <laughs> you know I got questions to answer really on both sides of the ball so uh I I'm I'm not seeing it for Notre Dame this year
1: elsewhere for Week Zero, we know that occasionally, not always, but for the most part for higher-ranked teams, this is in cupcake territory of tune-up matches, and, and you hate to throw those words out against other hard-working programs, but it's just the nature of the business. What matchup, though, for Week Zero are you most excited about big picture, and then which matchup that involves a ranked opponent are you most excited about?
4: Well, I think... You know, you look at at the lineup for this week. I mean, we're going to get the first real look at at USC's defense. um, And and San Jose State can throw it around. Siobhan Cordero is a good player. um, A guy that, you know, if there are holes to be found in USC's secondary, he's a guy that I think can find them. But don't sleep on Ohio and San Diego State. Those are two really, really good uh, G5 teams uh, with really good quarterbacks uh, in in Rourke and and Jalen Maiden. And, uh, ultimately, you know, those are probably the two games that I'm looking at that I'll be paying the most attention to uh, come Saturday.
3: Speaking of USC, obviously the headliner there is Caleb Williams. He would have been the number one pick last year had he been eligible to come out. At least a lot of people have thought that. What things would you like to see him improve on? Because I know that he is a very high-level prospect, Bobby's not a perfect player. So what are some things where you're like, okay, this is maybe something you want to see from him and what would likely be his final college season?
4: I mean, I think, can you work a little more within the offense? You know, if there's one criticism I have of, of Caleb Williams, which, you know, he was the best player in college football last year, with so <laughs> short. List. But just like, you know, can you, can you make the routine play? Um, you know, because you're not going to always be able to run around and, uh, you know, uh, extend plays to the level that he's done in college because he's, he's a better athlete than most of the guys that are chasing him. That's probably not going to be the case at the next level. So, you know, I think he can still get away with it in the, uh, in the college game for another season. Um, you know, it might hurt his health. I mean, he was banged up quite a bit last year. Um, but if he can, you know, uh, show he can make the routine play uh, and, and move the chains and, and not always look for the home run ball, I think if I was an NFL person, that'd be, that'd be uh, sort of my question number one, Caleb Williams. But the, the arm talent and the ability and all those things, I mean, he's, he's pretty special.
1: David Ubbin with us, national college football writer for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at David Ubbin and of course you can subscribe to his work just like you can James over at The Athletic. You had an interesting think exercise about tiers within college football right now and not to give too much away because obviously we want the listening audience to go check that out, but what was that process like and how did you make the differentiators between those tiers?
4: Yeah, we have looked at quarterbacks in the five major leagues and the, uh, the group of five and it sort of broke them out into tears, and it gives you a pretty interesting understanding of, of the quarterback play. And I think you look around, my major takeaways is where it's a pretty mediocre year for quarterbacks coming into the season uh, in the SEC. And, you know, the Pac-12 isn't as good as advertised. I mean, there might be uh, close to half a dozen guys in the Pac-12 that might be better than everybody else in the, big, or in the, uh, in the SEC coming in. So it's interesting that, you know, the Pac-12, for all of its off-field struggles and the fact that it's going to be pretty much going away after this year, it's sad because this is going to be certainly the most fun year of any conference in college football and, and the best year that we've seen in the Pac-12 in, gosh, decades probably.
3: Did all the fans agree with you on your tears?
4: <laughs> yeah, they all did. They were like, wow, this is actually get Yeah. I can't believe that he placed my guy exactly where he deserves to go. So I, like, I really appreciated their, their unity and, and understanding of my football expertise.
3: David, if you ever need backup, hit your boy up. I got you, man. I will empty the Twitter clip in defense of you, my friend. But in all seriousness, one of the biggest things you're talking about, you know, the changes to the Pac-12, the changes to the college football landscape, is there any bit of – you know, maybe we have to hold on and savor this a little bit more among, not just you, but just people in general when it comes to college football because the changes are coming as soon as next year.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you, I like the expanded playoff. I probably would have stopped at eight, but I think 12 will be fine. But I think, you know, one of the reasons that I love college sports is the regional identity and obviously the Mm -hmm. rivalries and – you know, a Pac-12 game, and an SEC game, and a Big Ten game. They look like almost different sports. And the NFL, that's not the case. You know, Everybody's kind of doing a lot of the same things in the NFL. Uh, and it's a pretty homogenous product. And that's not the case in in the uh, in college football. So, I mean, this off season, I've kind of had to mourn the idea that the college football that I grew up with is going to cease to exist. And that's kind of sad to me, I think. You know, it's interesting that we've heard so many administrators, you know, yell and scream that, oh, no, 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 we can't wait for the regular season. You know, if we have a playoff, it's going to ruin the sport. Uh, If we let players make money off their name, image, and likeness, we're going to ruin the sport. Meanwhile, we have all these conference moves that are actually ruining the sport, and uh, (laughs) these are being framed as decisions that they have to make, so... The the conversation around ruining college football is is rich from the folks that actually made decisions to do it.
3: So, David, I remember a story you wrote last year after Tennessee knocked off Alabama, and you basically walked around campus and documented the the pandemonium, which was a really fun story. I'm just curious, when did your fandom start for college sports and how did it start? And maybe, you know, take us back to young David who knew this is okay, this is my thing?
4: So the very first game that I ever went to was Arkansas against South Carolina in 1995. Uh, And I remember walking through the gates and just being like, this is incredible. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, And I think that, you know, for the portion of the country that's never been to, you know, an SEC game or a Big Ten game uh, or seen the crowds and the – it's just different. Um, It's something special, and there's a uh, there's an identity and a uh, connection that people have to their schools and to these experiences. That uh, you know, I like the NFL. Uh, A lot of college football fans don't. I like the NFL, but the college game is just something a little bit more special. And uh, I think you know, ever since then, you know, it's been a sport that that I've fallen in love with, especially in the South, where everyone cares and it means a ton. And uh, you know, I, I think. I don't know that a reckoning is coming for the sport in terms of people tuning out as more and more programs get pushed out into the cold and we sort of see this consolidation in the two major leagues. Uh, I think casual fans will continue to tune in, but the sport is never going to be what it once was, and, and what it was was something that made a lot of people fall in love with it. And, and you know, I think that's, that's sad to me.
1: You had a piece about a week or so ago on The Athletic talking about the two powerhouse leagues as it stands in terms of both membership and just the trajectory of the sport, the Big Ten and the SEC. And you had referenced a topic that some of us have speculating on and wondering how legitimate it is or how soon it could happen, and that is contraction happening after all of this expansion. How soon of a possibility is that in terms of the timeline we're on? Is it after these meteorites deals are done? Would it be the freedom of just a collection of, of board members and presidents coming through at any time and making those decisions or or is it aligned with those meteorites deals that are active right now?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that every time the meteorite deals are up, there's movement, you know, there's, there's like people kicking around ideas and, you know, if you don't like your numbers projections and the TV networks come to you and say, Hey, you don't have to bring this dead weight along. Everybody else is going to be making, you know, eight more digits. Uh, I, yeah, that's attractive to people. Now, what form that makes? Does that mean kicking people out, or does that mean forming, you know, a super league where, you know, maybe Vanderbilt, Northwestern, Indiana, maybe the Mississippi schools don't get the invite? You know, I don't know. Um, but I know that they've made they've made it pretty clear that that every decision in conference uh, membership and all that stuff. At this point, they're not even pretending that it's about anything other than money. And, you know, if if it's going to make you a ton more money, we're going to hear the same excuses from administrators that, well, we don't have a choice. we got to keep up. And that's what it is.
3: So we talk about keeping up. The Big Ten was obviously, I believe, had some good foresight at least to, hey, maybe we got to make sure we're we're okay. So what do you think about the health of the Big Ten and the idea of a USC at Rutgers game eventually (laughs) down the line?
4: Well, Big Ten is, I mean, well-positioned. I mean, ultimately, like, the football stuff is kind of secondary because it's, it's the travel and all that stuff, is. it doesn't even – it's not really going to affect them that much. You know, football travel, you're only talking about a third of the year, you know, six times a season at most, sometimes five, sometimes four. only you know, talking about a couple cross-country trips, that's a Friday flight. You know, you, maybe you miss half a day of class to get back Sunday. A lot of programs have Sunday off. They'll be fine. It's the midweek travel, the basketball, the non-revenue sports. Like, these are the people that are going to be in trouble. So, you know, as far as that goes, you know, it is what it is. And I think that, you know, we don't hear so much anymore, you know, we're thinking of student-athlete welfare when making decisions. That was a big talking point in 2010, you know, when a lot of these moves were happening and, you know, the Pac-16 almost happened, the Big 12 almost broke up. You know, there was a lot of talk about student-athlete welfare. We don't hear that much anymore. I'm, I'm curious why that is. But, um, you know, ultimately, like, the Big Ten is well-positioned. I mean, it's, it's it's trending toward an NFC-AFC situation. And how big the, the Big Ten and the SEC are and choose to be in whatever the future looks like, I mean, it seems like those are clearly going to be the two powers uh, in the sport.
1: James had asked this to you regarding the, the feeling of longing of it being the last year of some of these conferences, more specifically the Pac-12 and the way it looks and it never being the same for – That feeling in years past, whenever there were rivalries at play or something at stake and you had a team that was just leaving the conference on a one-off, it always felt like from afar, from a fan perspective, there was that sense of animosity within the conference, wanting to get the last laugh, wanting to be able to have the forever bragging rights, if you will. In this stance, is there that same feel from the national coverage, knowing that this is the last of its kind of this iteration Pac-12 champion at the end of the year?
4: I mean, I I don't think so. I I think if it had just been USC and UCLA leaving, I don't think people cared that much about UCLA, but USC, when they went on the road, was going to catch a lot of heat. Now, like, everyone's just sort of mad at everyone, and, you know, Cal and Stanford (laughs) are trying to play nice and figure out what their future is, you know, be that in the ACC or in some sort of reformulated Pac-12. You know, Oregon State and Washington State are just sort of mad at the world, I'm sure, and probably out for blood, but – The the parts have sort of splintered everywhere that there's not going to be that focused anger this year, I don't think.
3: So the one program I was waiting to ask you about in the the Pac-12, probably the most notable program because of their coach, at least right now for the general public, Colorado. So... What do you think of Deion Sanders' approach? I and mean, you got a piece in The Athletic that highlighted from a lot of players, you know, the overhaul, the mentality, some of the quotes in here. I'm like, wow, these guys are, you know, either they're on board, but it's it's jarring to kind of hear them say some of these things out loud, you know. So to see him kind of strip it down, build it up or try to build it up. I mean, what do you make of everything that is Deion Sanders?
4: Well, we've never seen anything like it. It's, it's literally, you know, unprecedented in major college football. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, I'm looking at a sheet in front of me right now. They have 10 scholarship players from last year's team coming back. They've added 68 new players. And since spring ball ended, they've added 56 new players. So we've just <laughs> never seen that before, uh, ever. And it's going to be a, I've it a chemistry experience or a chemistry experiment. Uh, I think it's, you know, Dion sort of downplaying the need for for a bond and, and the players liking each other and all that stuff I think is interesting. But time will tell. Time will tell.
3: Yeah, to piggyback off that, David, because I'm just waiting for the rubber to meet the road and for Dion's first, like, <laughs> you know, because I'm going to be honest. I mean, they were great. Obviously have seen the swag. Did a lot of good things there. A lot of that had to do with just the talent level they had. Yep. You're not getting the same amount of talent to go to Colorado just yet. So will you be there when they get smacked for the first time? Is that the athletic exclusive? We need that story because it's going to happen at some point. They're going to get throttled. It's just what it is.
4: I have good news for you, my good friend. I will be at four of Colorado's first five games. Uh, <laughs> I will be at TCU uh, when they host Nebraska, going out to Oregon when they play Bo Nix and that crew, and then Caleb Williams and USC coming to town uh, in Boulder for week five. I will be at those games. So uh, I'll be there and writing about it. You can follow that coverage on the Athletics. I
3: cannot wait. I'm about to be reading, and instigating, reading, and instigating. <laughs>
4: I understand
1: that it's not way too early anymore. Maybe it's just a little too early. But as you look across the landscape of college football, will there be a conference that gets two teams into the college football playoff in this Final Four team iteration?
4: The SEC and the Big Ten are going to have opportunities. They've got teams that are good enough. I mean, you look at the SEC, You know, Georgia, Alabama, LSU are certainly teams that are probably good enough. Texas A&M could be good enough. I don't know if they can sort of keep it together. And then, you know, you got three in one division, you know, in the Big Ten in, in Michigan, Ohio State, and and uh, Penn State, the Big Ten East. So, you know, can Wisconsin be in that conversation? You know, we'll see. Uh, you know, there's so many variables, but I would say that the odds are pretty good that one of those two conferences, you know, the team that's got one loss and doesn't win their division, I think will have a pretty good case uh, for inclusion in the playoff.
3: Real quick, David. I know Georgia is the preseason number one. They have all the expectations, and they should because they're really good. I forget which player was on the TV after they won it. Like y'all picked us to go six and whatever, and I'm like, you liar! No one ever, no one ever thought that. that. Was crazy.
4: I think that was no offense. I was on the field after the game, and that was like a major talking point of like people thought we were going to go seven and five. I'm like, where did y'all get this? <laughs> <laughs> This is just not true. Listen, I think people were doubting that they could win the SEC. I think a lot of people picked Bama last year, and I don't think people expected them to be quite as good. But the idea they were going to fall off uh, just does not jive with reality. But props to Kirby Smart for getting a team to believe that. Listen, perception is reality, and, and if it motivates guys, it is what it is. So 4-8 yeah.
1: and eight this year? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I'm trying to just figure out what we're, what we're I, doing. I just, want, <laughs> I just want a player on a
3: great team to be say yes, we expected to win every game this year because we were that good. Everyone expected us to win every game this year because we were that good. But nevertheless, there are some major changes down there in Georgia. You know, They obviously lost a lot of talent to the draft. But then their quarterback – Stetson Bennett, he's not there anymore. At least I'm pretty sure he's not there anymore. If he comes back out again, I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) But Carson Beck is the guy now. Your thoughts on him and what he's inheriting, knowing that for better or worse, he's going to bear the weight of
4: how this season goes. Yeah, man, I think it's, it's interesting because he's got so many pieces around him where I think that we won't even know how good he necessarily is. You know, last year... Georgia's receivers were not great, and all they did was go out and steal Mizzou and Mississippi State's best receivers, and Ra'us Thomas <laughs> and Dom Lovett. You still have Brock Bowers, who a lot of people think is you know the best player in the entire SEC um, at, at tight end, and you know the defense will be good again. I don't know that they're going to be you know one of the best in a decade or so, but they'll be good. Uh, and then of course, you know they lost Branson Robinson for the season today, Torres Patel, and their, their backs are a little bit banged up right now. Kendall Milton's been battling some entries, but ultimately the offensive line should be really good. There's just so many pieces around him that are setting him up for success that, you know, it's hard for for me to see him doing too poor.
3: So the last one for me, David, I know that ideally for his development, it probably would have been better for Anthony Richardson to go back to school for one more year, considering that he wasn't, you know, a first-team All-American. He wasn't All-SEC last year. Leaves early, obviously, because of where he was projected to go, where he ended up going, the money, all those things. So what do you expect from him, and what are some of the things you think he needs to improve on at this level now as the face of the Colts in
4: the NFL? Uh, which player are you about? You, uh, you, I'm sorry, uh, Anthony Richardson. Up there. Yeah, I mean, I think for him, I mean, the tools are there. I just think uh, I, I'm skeptical of him because the – Biggest indicator of success at the next level is career starts. And Anthony doesn't have a lot of them. I get the uh, athleticism and, and ability, um, but, you know, he was pretty shaky at Florida. You know, I, I think there was a lot of grumbling last year from him and rightfully or from, uh, you know, people about his play. And rightfully so. I mean, we'll see. I, I get it. I think, you know, uh, he walked into a really good situation, um, you know, coaching-wise, a guy that's going to know how to use him. And, and do use what he does well and not force him to do things that he doesn't do well um, and, and put a square peg into a round hole. So I think that's a good situation for him walking into. Uh, but, you know, he's got a lot to learn, and it's going to be, I think there could be a, a tough adjustment there. But there's not a, a lot of people with the kind of physical gifts that he has. So I, I'm fascinated. He'll be one of the most interesting guys in the league this year.
3: Oh, absolutely. David, he is an alien. I wonder if we're the same species because I look at him and I'm like, God just said you're going to be a football player because there's no other way to describe what he has. But again, my brother, thanks for taking time to hop on the radio with us. I'll catch up with you soon. And good luck this season, season at least early on on the Dion beat, because I will be locked in on that for sure.
4: Appreciate
3: it. Now we're going to talk to somebody else who has seen things from the other side, at least during practice the other day. That is Bo Wolf, who covers. Philadelphia, the Eagles, all things Philly for the Athletic. Bo, how you doing?
2: I'm doing good, but you're making me like feel so old. 2014? Senior year of high school? Come on.
3: I, yeah, man. I mean, I, it is way 10 years next year. I'm sorry. I, I was not a thought for my parents when they got married initially.
1: Freshman year of college for me, Bo, so you're out of uh, out of luck. Actually, that would have been sophomore year, but still. Same thing. I was in seventh I'm grade. Feeling
2: like, uh, I'm feeling like the old head. I'm feeling like Jason Kelsey. i got to run you guys over.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, unlike Zaire
3: Franklin, who got up, I would not get up. I would be down there, and I'd be getting carted off the field. So we'll start there spicy practice I was not there I wish I was because I'm like dang I, I like you know all of the riff raff and all the nonsense and all <laughs> the petty stuff that everyone says um you know matters a lot but doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things but what was your take on the skirmish that ended practice that obviously involved two well-respected guys who I think are really high character guys overall
2: yeah I mean I have seen a lot of training camp fights in my time, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Um, and what was interesting was that like you could really sort of see it coming. Um, there were a couple like n- like minor skirmishes throughout practice. Uh, you know, Derek Barnett had like knocked the ball out of Anthony Richards, Richardson's hands, and that uh, sparked like the everybody to come off the sidelines. But it didn't really get all the way going. And it was like the last period of, of the Eagles' first team offense against the, the Colts' first team defense. And Kelsey and Franklin had been barking back and forth for, like, about a half an hour. And I think, you know, Jason Kelsey was taking some umbrage with, like, the, uh, the, the level of thud that Zaire Franklin thought was appropriate for, for tackling. And it, on the first play of this, of this drive, you know, Franklin thuds Kenny Gainwell, the Eagles running back, uh, on a run. And Kelsey took, uh, took offense to that, and they started barking back and forth again. And on the very next play, it's a, it's a pass to Kenny Gainwell. In 15 yards down the field, Zaire Franklin hits him even harder than he did the play before. And here comes Jason Kelsey running like 100 miles an hour as fast as he possibly can and just trucks Zaire Franklin. And like, I, I, I uh, sort of agree with Zaire Franklin, his point that, like, you know, this guy's an OG. I would have thought he would have looked me in the face. At the same time, I'm sort of thinking, like, you guys were just barking back and forth. You know that he's not going to like this. You probably should have had your head on a swivel at that point. Like, so uh, I, I have never seen like a full-on run over. I mean, I've seen like punches thrown, but but never anything like that. And and Jason Kelsey is known to be uh, like an emotional guy, especially in practice. But I haven't I haven't ever seen him do something like that to somebody else.
3: Well, I'll tell you what. That is actually smarter, in my opinion, than throwing a punch at a guy with a helmet on. So running him over seems like... The idiocracy to,
2: of that always yeah, drives Yeah, if
3: mad. you're trying to inflict yeah. some level of pain, you should do that. But to your point about keeping your head on the swivel got to learn from Jordan Poole. You don't say things, you don't (laughs) shove people and keep your hands down or turn your back because then you might be, you know, going to sleep. So obviously it didn't happen with Zaire, but I just found that interesting that that was all over the timeline and it's always so funny when, you know, the fans here I'm sure were like, yeah, get them, you know, they don't want any of this and then the Eagles fans are probably saying like, I don't want any of this and it's like, it, two weeks from now no one's gonna even remember yeah. that this happened at all but um, if it's my job to do so I will definitely bring it up when I see Zaire like man you, you heard you got whooped by Jason Kelsey I might, I might not do
1: that. Oh please ask it that way please. And he's a Philly guy too. Yeah. I don't know I mean, me and Zaire are pretty Philly, cool Kelsey.
3: yeah me and Zaire are pretty cool so Bo, Jimmy I might take on for the team and really ask him like did you get your butt whooped
1: in Philly? I need a GoPro when you ask that question <laughs> I need actual <laughs> I, said, I might have a
3: black eye myself after that but we'll see. <laughs> That's
1: right uh, Bo for context since again, you were there and we weren't. Was it bad enough in terms of ranking? Like, wow, this escalated very quickly of training camp practices. Because James always likes to complain about the fact that the word of brawl at training yeah, camp is often overused. Yeah. And did and it didn't really happen or was it just a spat? But it was clear that was legitimate action across the way from both teams. Was it bad enough in your mind that if this was a Saturday preseason game and there were two joint practices scheduled this week? That they would have taken the field together today?
2: Oh, uh, that's a good question. I think that they probably would have continued practice. Um, I, I sort of think that what happened is because there was only one joint practice between these two sides, everything sort of escalated quicker. You know, usually it's like day one carries over to day two, and mm-hmm. so it was like all of the uh, the emotion of going against each other. Everybody knew that this was their only chance and, and their last. Like you know, for the for the starters on the Eagles, they're not going to play on Thursday night, so this was their last. Real practice of the summer, um, so I think it's sort of like uh, it, it sped up because of that. But I, I mean, I think it was it was a real fight. Um, like if this was uh, if this had happened in a game, like you know, both guys are getting thrown out. Uh, you know, there are fines and suspensions probably. It was it was pretty aggressive.
3: So what you're saying is you're gonna get your lick in, get it in the preseason, <laughs> <laughs> where your team kind of decides these things. But I will say this in all seriousness, Bo. One of the biggest topics here in Indianapolis is. Can Shane Steichen sort of replicate that development of Jalen Hurts here with Anthony Richardson? And the question I want to ask you is how important do you think having a thousand yard rusher, for example, or a star running back is to that development? Because we saw Jalen Hurts turn a corner in 2021 when he was actually the team's leading rusher. Then obviously last year they trade for A.J. Brown. That's a great addition. They have Miles Sanders; he's a thousand-yard rusher. They make this massive leap and turn into, you know, a Super Bowl-contending team. For Richardson, do you think it's necessary for him and Steichen to have JT in the backfield, or can they get it done if they're able to sort of, you know, find some, you know, running backs by committee?
2: You know, my my take on on the quarterback development with with respect to Jalen Hurts, who, I, I do think that Jalen is a little bit different just because he's like. The way that he is wired is is so hard to find. But for a player of that skill set, I, I think that the, the wide receiver talent matters more than the running back. Because uh, what Jalen Hurts brings to the table as a runner and what Anthony Richardson brings to the table as a runner, I think makes things so much easier for the running back to run the ball because of the attention that the opposing defense has to pay to the quarterback threat of a run. And if the offensive line is really good, like it is in Philadelphia, and I know that, like, what, what Indy wants to build uh, with the Colts, then I think that, like, you know, Jonathan Taylor would certainly bring more upside. But I think that you can get away with sort of replacement-level running backs being productive and taking some weight off of the quarterback. I think the wide receiver talent matters a lot more. And, and you know, Jalen Hurts probably would have taken some kind of leap from year two to year three regardless. Mm-hmm. But the addition of A.J. Brown... I think made a, made a bigger difference than any any kind of running back would have made. Um, the ability to trust that, you know, like a guy's going to get open when he's supposed to get open and that if you throw a contested ball, you know, there's like a 75% chance he's going to come down with it. I think like, you know, if if, uh, if Shane Steichen could bring anybody with him to Indianapolis from Philadelphia, my guess is that it would be either A.J. Brown or Devontae Smith.
1: There's been plenty of counter examples to the old cliche that I'm going to throw at you here, but the the old, you know, when, when we're looking at the past Super Bowl, like is there going to be a hangover and, and the losers are they going to be able to respond and make the playoffs and and for a while that was a narrative that had some legs, particularly in the you know early 2000s, but 2010 and beyond, there's been plenty of examples you can point to of this a team that made the playoffs despite losing in the Super Bowl, like it's it's it is what it is, it's a narrative. But if we're going down that rabbit hole, the Eagles will avoid that if what this season? They, 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 they will have a, another put to bed on the whole Super Bowl losers mm. curse if they do what this season in your mind?
2: Yeah, I, I think it sort of comes down to Jalen Hurts and, and it's hokey to say, but I mean, there are, there are a lot of reasons why... A team that goes to the Super Bowl would not be as good as they were the year before. Uh, just like, regardless of the hangover, right? Like the Eagles were extremely healthy last year. They're they're probably not going to be as healthy as they were last year. You know, everything has to go right, right for you to get that far. You know, they they were very good in the red zone. They were very good at taking the ball away, and those things are not usually sticky year to year. I, I think that the uh, you know the disease of more that they talk about and like the, the complacency that's a real thing. I think that was a factor for the Eagles. In 2018, after they won the Super Bowl in 2017, but I do, and this is like, if you if you had told me that I was going to say this like three years ago, I would I would have laughed because it, it's not the kind of thing that I tend to agree with. But like Jalen Hurts's force of personality and um, the way that he is like so dialed into like the Nick Sabanisms of uh, you just got to get better every single day and stick to the process. Like that is the way that he lives his life. And it's sort of like when you're first around him, it feels inauthentic. And then the more you see it every single day, you're like, it's it's kind of hard to believe that this guy is like this. And I think that that um, is the way that the the team follows Jalen Hurd. Nick Sirianni preaches these same things and is very good at uh, sticking to the details and focusing on the details. But I I think this this team takes on Jalen's personality even more than it does Nick Sirianni's personality. And, uh, like, I, I don't think that they're going to have that that complacency. Now, the schedule is much more difficult, uh, but the NFC looks pretty good. I, I think they have a good chance to be uh, another Super Bowl contender. And so I guess my answer to the question would be, as long as they are a top-three offense like I expect them to be, uh, if everybody stays healthy, then I think they have a really good chance to, to go far.
3: Bo, from what I read from Zach Berman yesterday, a few other writers, and just saw things I saw on Twitter, is there another leap that Devontae Smith can make And if so, how much do you think that changes, you know, what this team is capable of? Considering all the factors you just listed, but if, you know, you have another wide receiver one, basically, I would assume that increases your chances of being really good at football.
2: Yeah. um, It's crazy because, like, those two guys were both so good last year. You know, A.J. Brown set the franchise record for – Receiving yards and Devonte Smith set the record for receptions uh, for a wide receiver, and you know over the past decade or whatever it is for the Eagles. Um, I think Devonte Smith can, like is uh, sort of a one A. Um, like the way that he contorts his body, uh, the body control that he has, like the, the feel for space on the field, I think is is really really impressive. Um, it's a little bit like he wins in a different way than AJ Brown does. AJ Brown is much more about like this pure physicality that he has. Um and then there's Dallas Goddard too, who I think like is maybe being slept on a little bit. I know he's he's missed some time over the past few years, but he is just as important a part of the offense as those other two guys. But there's I, I think like as good as Devontae Smith is, what what protects the Eagles a little bit is, you know, if knock on wood, one of those three guys goes down, having the other two should still allow them to be really, really good offensively.
3: Gotcha. And then one thing I want to touch on is I know Shane Steichen plans to continue calling the plays here. That's something that he said he's not giving up, hasn't shown any signs of giving up. We'll see if he changes his mind, sort of like Nick Sirianni did midway through the season. But how have you seen Brian Johnson on the other side embrace being the offensive coordinator and add his own, maybe a little flavor to it?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because we spent a lot of time last summer talking about You know, how excited Jalen Hurts was to get to play for a play caller for the second year in a row for the first time since he was in high school. And now all of a sudden he's back to uh, (laughs) square one with Brian Johnson. It's not quite square one, though, because he and Brian Johnson have a very long history together. Brian Johnson played for Jalen Hurts' dad as a coach in high school. Uh, They have known each other, you know, since Jalen was like three years old. Obviously, he was the quarterback's coach for Jalen the the first two years here in Philadelphia. Um, So they have a good rapport, and I I imagine that Brian Johnson – Understands the kinds of things that Jalen does well and the kinds of things he wants, but I, I do think that it's fair to expect that to be a bit of a work in progress and, and take some time. Uh, my, my expectation is that if Brian Johnson will be, you know, good at the job, he's got great. If we use like the analogy of, uh, you know, he's got to cook the meal. He's got like great ingredients with uh, the offensive line and the three receivers that we talked about and Jalen Hurts like that he should be able to to make stuff happen I'm definitely curious to see how how Shane does at this because as you talked about like this was the same thing that Nick Sirianni went through he wanted to call plays as he was the head coach early on handed over the the reins to Shane Steichen halfway through that first year and everything I've heard and everybody everybody talks about uh and Zach Berman has written about this like they they viewed Shane Steichen as this sort of savant play caller um and so I understand why he doesn't want to take that off of his plate. But I also know that, like, the responsibilities on game day of a head coach are are pretty significant. So I don't know if he's going to be able to, to make it through the season. I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes.
3: We'll see for sure. But, Bo, I got to let you go. I appreciate you coming on. And the next time they have some, some fights in Philly, make sure you grab your, your Dukes and, and you get in there too, okay? <laughs> Represent for us at The Athletic.
2: <laughs> you got it, James. Thanks.